0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading... Denver Police lacks plans for staffing retention and improving community policing, according to a new audit report by Rebecca Tauber. And this has been Denver's rainiest June since the 1880s, and it could still rain some more by Obed Manuel. From Westward, I'll be reading Pepper's Senior Dog Sanctuary, The Last Best Stop by Amber Tauphin. And... Christine Taylor's Disappearance Adds to Missing Indigenous Women Crisis, by Michael Roberts. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These next two articles are from Denverite. Denver Police Lacks Plans for Staffing Retention and Improving Community Policing, According to a New Audit Report, by Rebecca Tauber. In a report released Thursday, The Denver Auditor's Office says the Denver Police Department lacks planning and infrastructure to improve staffing and community policing. The report says DPD faces low morale and needs to improve efforts to recruit women and build trust with communities. Denver's Police Department needs a clear plan to address community policing efforts, recruiting low morale and loss of officers, especially among women and people of color said Auditor Timothy O'Brien in a statement Thursday. The audit report comes after years of scrutiny over DPD and policing in the U.S. more broadly. Denver has paid more than $3 million in 2023 in settlements involving police misconduct claims, many dating back to the 2020 George Floyd protests. The report says DPD needs a strategic plan to improve community policing. Community policing is an approach to policing that involves building relationships with community members through events and time set aside to interact with neighborhood residents. The audit report said DPD lacks a strategic approach to community policing and that officers should spend 35% of their workday on community policing efforts rather than responding to calls. Department leaders assert that they cannot formalize a community policing plan because it isn't measurable. But policing best practices recommend such specific strategic planning, and the U.S. Department of Justice has helped other cities formalize such plans, wrote O'Brien in a statement Thursday. Meanwhile, staffing shortages make it difficult for the police department to commit officers' time to proactive community policing efforts. The Auditor's Office also says Denver Police needs a more clear set of strategies to improve staffing and retention. The report found that while DPD closely reflects Denver's racial demographics, it has a large gender disparity. The force consists of only 19% women, while women make up about half of Denver's population. The study showed that women also resign from the force at a higher rate. The audit also found that only approximately 58% of surveyed DPD employees said that they think employees are treated fairly based on race, gender, and age, and that only around 45% think career growth depends on skill rather than personal identity. The survey also showed low morale related to burnout and low staffing. DPD agreed with all 16 of the auditor's recommendations, including providing more mental health and physical therapy resources. The department has 60 to 90 days to implement changes. In response to the report, Police Chief Ron Thomas said DPD is already taking steps, such as creating new community relations and engagement roles and hiring a marketing firm to help with recruitment. The Denver Police Department strives to continually improve and find ways to better serve our community and our team members, Thomas said in a letter responding to the report. The review process occurred during a time of transition, and it is affirming to know the items I have prioritized as the chief are some of the items you identified in the operations audit. Other suggestions from the auditor are more broad, such as developing strategic plans, measuring the success of community policing, updating DPD's recruitment program, and addressing causes for low retention. In addition to strategic and staffing issues, The report found that DPD lacks a documented process for reviewing time card violations. The auditor's office estimated that between January 2017 to October 2022, potentially 23% to 60% of weekly time cards had violations, meaning officers potentially worked more hours than legally allowed, without exceptions for things like staffing shortages. From Denverite, I'll be reading Denver Police Lacks Plans for Staffing Retention and Improving Community Policing According to a New Audit Report by Rebecca Tauber. And This has been Denver's Rainiest June since the 1880s and it could still rain some more by Obed Manuel. From Westward, I'll be reading Pepper's Senior Dog Sanctuary The Last Best Stop by Amber Tauphin. And Christine Taylor's Disappearance Adds to Missing Indigenous Women Crisis, by Michael Roberts. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westford. This has been Denver's rainiest June since the 1880s, and it could still rain some more, by Obed Manuel. So, it's been raining a lot. But just how much is a lot? Well, this week, Denver set two rainfall records. With 5.23 inches of rain recorded at Denver International Airport so far this month, it has been the rainiest June in Denver since the 1880s, according to the National Weather Service forecaster Paul Schlatter. And it could still rain more Thursday evening as Denver remained under a thunderstorm warning. Sure, we might expect to see storms this time of year, like the ones that produced heavy hail at Red Rocks Amphitheater Wednesday night and a tornado just south of Denver Thursday afternoon. But this much rain at this point in June? Not so much. What is really abnormal is the amount of rain and flooding. Usually the rain shuts off by early June, Schlatter said. It hasn't stopped raining since early May. And on Wednesday, Denver set a new daily rainfall record. Some 1.85 inches of rain were recorded at DIA Wednesday, setting a new daily record for June 21st. Schlatter said the metro area can expect to dry out by next week when temps are expected to top out in the mid to high 80s. It will be more typical June weather next week, Schlatter said. Until then, history has been made, Denver. The following articles are from Westward. Pepper's Senior Dog Sanctuary, The Last Best Stop by Aunt Amber Taufen For Mary Laprino, Finding Pepper a dog that she says would have been euthanized because of numerous health issues, including diabetes and dental problems, was a lifesaver. I fell in love with him, she recalls. He was a little Pomeranian, and we instantly bonded. Pepper was instrumental in helping Leprino through recovery as the best sober companion anybody could ever have. Rock solid, she says. So she promised her pet that one day she'd pay his loyalty and service forward in some way. And when he crossed the Rainbow Bridge in 2017, she started brainstorming plans for a sanctuary for older dogs. We wanted a place for senior dogs that was like their last stop, their hospice or retirement, and the only time they'd have to leave was for specialized medical care, Liprino explains. Along with her son, Justin Klemmer, and niece, Lee Sullivan, She started making a business plan for such a sanctuary and looking for land in 2019, at the worst time in the history of the world, she recalls. They scoured land listings, seeking properties that would be both large enough and suitable for a senior dog sanctuary. When they saw a listing for 7,000 Roxborough Park Road in Littleton on the MLS, they hurried to check it out and realized it would be the perfect spot. They closed on the property in August of 2019. With the land in hand, they set out to create a haven for dogs that needed a forever home and were unlikely to find one through typical shelter services. An initial angel donor gave $1.7 million to the cause, and they started constructing the facility. After a soft opening two weeks ago, the sanctuary finally began accepting permanent residents. There will be a grand opening on July 8th. There are currently three senior dogs at Pepper's Senior Dog Sanctuary, which plans to slowly accept up to 50 from partnering shelters in the metro area. New residents will have to be quarantined for a couple of weeks before they can move in with the rest of the shelter population. Dogs are housed in bedrooms, not kennels, and there are parks and play areas catering the dogs with different levels of fitness and mobility as well as sensory gardens for blind and deaf animals, with live plants and wind chimes. The facility includes a full-service on-site vet clinic that can provide basic care and even minor surgery for residents of Peppers. The only time dogs will have to leave is for specialized care, such as oncology or ophthalmology. The sanctuary's staff includes a medical doctor and two veterinarians, one full-time and one part-time. To help supplement the sanctuary budget, Laprino says that the vet clinic at Pepper's will offer wellness visits for spaying or neutering dogs, dental appointments, checkups, and other basic care, though she notes that the clinic won't see sick dogs from outside the sanctuary in order to protect the health of the resident dog population. But the water therapy treadmill will be open for public use. It's a publicly funded charity, Laprino explains. I want it to be generational and I want it to grow, so I can only donate 2% of the annual operating budget. Peppers can take donations through Venmo or online to help with shelter operations. Leprino notes that the sanctuary is always looking for more shelter volunteers. Old dogs need cuddles and love, too, and has an Amazon wish list, too. It's partnering with Firefly Autism to offer therapy visits, and also hosting bingo and movie nights when residents of senior citizen homes can play games or watch movies in the presence of Pepper's dogs. Pepper's won't be accepting owner-surrendered dogs, but rather will partner with certain shelters to help ease the burden of caring for senior dogs or dogs with serious medical issues. Last year, staffers at animal shelters reported seeing more animals come in with specialized needs, a trend that they said was exacerbated by inflation rates and a lack of pet-friendly housing. Every time we take out a senior dog out of a shelter, they can take in two more dogs that are easily adoptable, Leprino explains. Seniors are expensive medically, and they require a lot more time. After a dog arrives at Pepper's, it has a home for life. No dog suffers, Leprino notes. We are compassionate. We never euthanize for space and we take wonderful care of the dogs until it's their time to pass. Pepper's Senior Dog Sanctuary will hold a grand opening celebration from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Saturday, July 8th at 7,000 Roxborough Park Road, Littleton. Go to psds.org for more information and emailing development at psds.org by July 3rd if you're planning to attend. Christine Tale's Disappearance Adds to Missing Indigenous Women Crisis, by Michael Roberts. The search for Christine Tale, who vanished in Denver last week, is receiving more press and law enforcement attention than usual for a case involving a missing indigenous woman. But the disappearance itself is all too typical. Tale was featured in a June 21st CNN report after the Colorado Bureau of Investigation publicly sought the public's assistance in locating her. A flyer tweeted by the CBI notes that the 32-year-old was last seen June 14th on the 1400 block of Champa Street, wearing a white t-shirt with a gay pride logo, blue shorts, and white tennis shoes. She's approximately 5 feet 4 inches tall and 130 pounds, with bleached blonde hair dyed pink at the tips and the text of the alert notes that Christine is from South Dakota and went missing on her first night in Denver. Also seeking to find Tale is Look for Me, a Golden-based nonprofit focusing on the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women (MMIW) that began spreading the word about her disappearance before CNN and the CBI, according to White Owl, Look for Me's crisis coordinator. The organization was contacted by TAIL's aunt, Jennifer Black Elk, after her niece went missing. The flyer being circulated by look for me created by the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives Task Force of Colorado, includes more specific information about the most recent public sighting of TAIL. The address noted is 891 14th Street, which corresponds to Spire condos and several businesses that share the building. White Owl is pleased that there's so much focus on Tails' plight, but he sees the level of scrutiny as the exception, not the rule. Generally, we get five to seven reports of missing indigenous women every day, coming from South Dakota, from New Mexico, from the Four Corners, from Montana and Oklahoma, he says. Brandy Martinez, Look for Me's founder and CEO, thinks one reason Tails' situation is receiving so much publicity might be because of the Gay Pride logo on her shirt, since Denver Pride Fest is slated to get it underway this weekend, June 24th and 25th. But White Owl also attributes the increased notice to pressure that people are putting on about MMIW awareness now. I've only been involved with MMIW for the past two years, and before that, I didn't know it was this bad. I didn't know that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of missing indigenous people whose cases haven't even started being looked into. Look For Me has been working behind the scenes in recent years to help relatives left to look for loved ones themselves in the face of law enforcement inaction that Martinez and White Owl say often stems from jurisdictional disputes between federal, state, local, and tribal agencies. But the nonprofit has broadened its efforts since Aquiline Drones, a Connecticut-based company, agreed to provide drones to search for missing indigenous women. During a meeting of tribal leaders and emergency personnel in Rapid City, South Dakota earlier this month, Look For Me was named the official conduit between Aquiline and the 573 federally recognized tribes in the United States. During the gathering, a drone raffle resulted in one of the devices being presented to the Ogallala Sioux Tribe, to which Tail belongs. Martinez feels that Tail was abducted and taken to Mexico as part of a human trafficking operation. The bad guys know where to look and who's vulnerable, she says. While the search for Tail continues... White Owl hopes that national media outlets and police representatives will be more intentional about shining a light on all missing and murdered indigenous women. It's heartbreaking that more alerts aren't being sent out, he emphasizes, because indigenous people go missing every day, every hour, almost every minute. Anyone with information about the whereabouts of Christine Tail is encouraged to dial 911 or contact the Denver Police Department at 720-913-3200. 10 Things You Should Know About Hail, Colorado's Most Damaging Weather Phenomenon by Teague Bolin Hail is like the mosquito of precipitation, a damn nuisance with absolutely no redeeming qualities. Fog is nicely moody, so is rain, and petrichor is one of the best scents ever. Snow holds the promise of forts and friendly fights and rotund men with sticks for arms and carrot noses. Even sleet can glass over an entire landscape, and while you might get stuck in your house for a bit, outside it's an icy wonderland of shining freeze. But hail? Hail just sucks. Just ask the folks who got stuck out at Red Rocks last night, pelted by golf-ball-sized hail that sent some people to the hospital. Or the owners of cars or gardens or trees that were out in the elements and suffered the after-effects of the shotgun shatter sh- scattershot weather. And no Metro Denver homeowner is going to get through today without thinking about their roof, especially with more hail predicted. Since we're all bound to be thinking and talking about hail today, here are a few hail-related facts that you can share with your fellow victims, um, Coloradans. Hail is really about wind. A thunderstorm is required for a real hailstorm, one with strong upward winds. Those upwards push rain back up into the atmosphere, where it freezes and then falls again. This cycles until the pellets of moisture become too heavy for the wind to buoy up again, and it falls as hail. Hail happens everywhere. Given the above conditions, hail is created during thunderstorms all over the country. But if the conditions aren't right, mainly it's not cold enough for the gathered moisture to remain solid as it falls, you won't be pummeled by hail, just soaked by rain. The size of the hail depends on the strength of the updraft. Based on the above metrics, it makes sense that the stronger the wind, the heavier and larger the hail will remain in that rising and falling cycle in the upper atmosphere, resulting in larger hail hitting the ground, and your car, house, and possibly children. While tornadoes get better press, serious hailstorms are worse. There are books and movies and songs, oh my, about tornadoes and nothing much about hail. But serious hailstorms are five times more common and cause far more damage in terms of recovery costs. Across North America, the destruction caused by hail costs over $10 billion and accounts for nearly 70% of property damage claims attributed to weather. The largest hailstone recorded fell in South Dakota In a 2010 storm, the largest known hailstone weighed almost two pounds and had a diameter of about eight inches. According to a report from the National Climatic Data Center, that's the size of a regulation volleyball. And as with any hailstone measurements, experts presume that it was significantly larger on impact than it was by the time it could be measured and recorded. Denver is smack in the middle of Hail Alley. It's not your imagination that Denver, and Colorado in general, gets more than its share of hail. It's in a swath of the western U.S. called Hail Alley that stretches from Wyoming down to Texas, and Colorado over to Kansas, including the western half of the Dakotas, most of Nebraska and Oklahoma, and parts of Missouri, Iowa, and Illinois. Colorado specifically is so inclined to hail because of its elevation, On the high plains, there's simply less space between the atmosphere and the ground for hail to have the chance to melt away. Thanks, Rocky Mountains. Oklahoma carries the dubious distinction of having the worst hail seasons. The Sooner State has had over 2,200 serious hail events, a storm that includes hailstones measuring over an inch, since 2015. That's a lot of dent repair. The costliest Denver hailstorm to date was in May 2017. That storm caused $2.3 billion in damage, and those were only the losses claimed by insurance. How this year's hailstorms will measure up is still in question. A 2018 hailstorm killed two animals and injured 14 people at Cheyenne Mountain Zoo in Colorado Springs. A severe hailstorm pelted the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo in 2018, killing a four-year-old Muscovy duck named Daisy and Motswari, a 13-year-old Cape vulture. Sixteen other animals were injured, along with 14 visitors, some of whom had head injuries and broken bones, like the victims at Red Rocks last night. Hail is getting worse. By the end of this century, which might feel like an eternity, but we're almost a quarter of a way there, Scientists publishing with the American Meteorological Society project that our region will experience three more ser- serious hail events each year, with the greatest impact seen across the northeastern plains. So cover your vehicles, make sure your insurance is paid up, and watch the skies, Colorado. Daphne Salone wants to save her Tennyson street house as a historic reminder by Benito El Elkelti. Homes aren't built the way they used to be. In the 4500 block of Tennyson Street, a row of hip, modern townhouses and three-story apartment complexes holds few reminders of what the area was like a century ago, when the Oriental Theater was being built just down the block in the heart of the Berkeley neighborhood in northwest Denver. The original Elitch Gardens was eight blocks away down the street. Lakeside Amusement Park was just a mile away. One holdout from that era is the old blue house at 4450 Tennyson Street, which Daphne Salone bought to use as her accounting office in 2006, and today rents out. Next door, there's another, a circa 1910 red brick home at 4454 Tennyson, with an absolutely magnificent interior with stained glass, owned by Green Door Living Real Estate. Salone bought the smaller house for $185,000 when that whole strip of Tennyson was like crack houses, she recalls. No one went up there unless they had to. You never wanted to come down the street because it was really scary. Now the street is lined with pricey apartments and hip stores. Salone says she buys houses like most girls buy shoes. She bought her first home when she was 24 in Aurora. And then purchased two near Sloan's Lake before buying 4450 Tennyson. She would like to own 4454 Tennyson too, and make them both Denver landmarks, but that's out of her price range. Instead, she's focusing on putting her own property on the city's historic register to protect it from encroaching development. But she knows little about the home's history beyond the fact that it was built in 1900. A few years ago, A family stopped by and asked to look around its interior. They said they were the grandchildren of the original builder of both her house and the larger one next door. But I didn't think much of it at the time, she recalls. I thought, well, geez, how hard could it be to get in touch with them in the future if I wanted? As it turns out, her house is one of the oldest structures left in the Berkeley neighborhood. The Oriental Theater, one of the last historic anchors of Tennyson, wasn't completed until 1927. The carousel that still stands on the old Elitch Gardens grounds was built in 1925, though the park itself was founded in 1890. Both the carousel and the theater are on National Historic Registers. People started homesteading the area in the 1860s, according to the Tennessee Berkeley Business Association, and a trolley line was added to its dusty streets only a few decades later. In 1892, the area became the town of North Denver, but it became the Berkeley neighborhood after it was annexed to Denver in 1902, the year the Colorado legislature made Denver both a city and a county. As in other Denver neighborhoods on the north and west sides, Italians and Mexicans immigrated to Berkeley in the 1930s and 40s, Along with Sunnyside and Highland, it became part of what was known as the North Side in the 60s and 70s. By the 1990s, the Berkeley neighborhood had lost its trolley line, Elitch Gardens had moved, and mom and pop businesses started leaving. In the next decade, the big buildings of, and businesses started coming in, and Tennyson lost much of its old neighborhood charm. Salone's house is one of the lucky last relics of the historic street's original character. It's really important for people to walk down the street and look left and say, Oh my God, what on earth is this? Well, guess what? That's what this whole block used to look like, Salone says. I can't imagine what that would be like to look at a city that's been basically leveled and rebuilt when there was nothing wrong with, with what was there in the first place. The blue house is almost hidden, pushed back from the street, with a long green lawn stretching from the sidewalk to its short wooden patio and quaint blue facade. When you drive by there, you miss my house unless you're looking for it, Salone says. It looks like a shed, a garden shed, it's so small. Dog walkers who pass by the house have at times mistaken the property for a small park and let their pooches run onto the lawn and play, only for the tenant to ask them what they're doing. It's the only green grass and the only big trees left on the block, Salone says. It's this tiny stretch of lawn, and everyone's craving it. Salone has had offers for the house from developers, including Greed Door Living, which owns the properties on both sides. She used to be open to the idea, but now she says she wouldn't sell it to developers for $1 million. My little house, she's awesome, Salone says. My little house is going to be sitting there forever. Not only is it important historically, she explains, but having it still standing on the block sends a message. People are so transient now and so fickle with their homes, Salone says. It's hard to imagine the city of Denver and some of those older streets that could possibly never have one original structure left on them. It just breaks my heart. Homeless Encampments Along Aurora's Highways Reveal Growing Unsheltered Population by Benito El Kelty. It's a sight that's all too familiar to Denver commuters. You're driving along Interstate 225 in Aurora, trying to take in what little scenery you can, when pockets of tents and clutter suddenly come into view near certain on- and off-ramps. Then you pass another encampment, and then another, More and more of these tiny tent cities have popped up in Aurora over the past year, as Colorado's third biggest city continues to see an increasing number of unsheltered people living on its streets. According to the federal government's point-in-time count, which estimates homeless populations through a survey conducted one day a year, Aurora's 2022 homeless population of 612 is the highest the city has seen since 2013, when it was estimated to be around 661 people. Aurora has kept its estimated homeless population under 500 people for most of the decade, but that number has been growing since 2018, when Aurora reported a homeless population of 357. And today, the percentage of unsheltered individuals in that population appears to be much higher than it had been in recent years. The total homeless population listed by the point in time counts include both people who are living on the streets and those staying in shelters or other temporary places. When Aurora tallied 661 homeless people in 2013, only 43 of them were unsheltered. In 2022, the city reported that 301 out of its 612 homeless residents were unsheltered. While no count was conducted in 2021 because of COVID-19, Aurora reported an unsheltered homeless population of only 61 people in 2020, and only 30 in 2019. Homeless encampments tend to gravitate toward I-225, the backbone of Aurora that connects to Interstates 70 and 25. Today, commuters will often see gatherings of tents, bikes, and tarps around on- and off-ramps near I-225 in Parker, an area with plenty of open space around Cherry Creek State Park and the 9-mile light rail station. Aurora's unsheltered homeless population tends to set up camp in spots with open space, in drainage areas or in the city's transportation corridors, including its highways, according to Jessica Poser, the Director of Housing and Community Services for Aurora. There are definitely areas that people tend toward more than others, Poser says. Just like anyone else that has a neighborhood that they're familiar with, they know the people and businesses and services. They tend to stay in places that they know or where they feel safer or where there's something else that's keeping them. The space near highways is less vegetated, more open, she explains, Noting how people may also go to higher-trafficked areas because they're closer to amenities or services like a business opportunity, food, bathroom. There are things that are kind of in closer proximity when camping in urban corridors. Encampments along highways may be more visible because those areas are busy all week long. But we have encampments throughout the city, she adds. This increase in Aurora's unsheltered population comes despite Aurora City Council passing an unauthorized camping ban in March of 2022 that resembles Denver's 2012 camping ban. Since then, the city of Aurora has cleaned up or abated 399 homeless encampments, according to an update on the camping ordinance presented last month to the council by Emma Knight, manager of the city's homeless programs. Aurora has an intergovernmental agreement to work with the Colorado Department of Transportation to clear encampments on highways, which fall under state and federal jurisdictions. But the competing jurisdictions can slow down Aurora's ability to remove these encampments. The area around I-225 and Parker Road, where people tend to camp, is really complicated, according to Aurora City spokesman Michael Brannan, with Arapahoe County, CDOT, and even the Ar- Army Corps of Engineers having oversight of the Highway and Cherry Creek State Park. Addressing campsites near I-225 and Parker Road is challenging due to the multiple jurisdictions in the area, Brandon tells Westward. Depending on where a tent is located, either CDOT, Denver, Aurora, Arapahoe County, Cherry Creek State Park, or their Army Corps of Engineers is responsible for monitoring it. I-225 and Parker Road is one of the most abated locations, Knight told the council, and the city also has to work with CDOT to abate areas where the highways intersect with Iliff Avenue, Mississippi Avenue, and the Highline Canal. Aurora has spent more than $2 million enforcing its camping ordinance, according to city documents, with most of those costs coming from constructing new small-scale shelters. In order to comply with regulations that keep camping bans legal, Aurora doesn't abate encampments unless it has a place to put the people it forces out. An abatement starts after a complaint is filed on Access Aurora or if an encampment is found on private property after a code enforcement violation is reported to the city. Once staffers investigate the complaint, They follow through by going out to the encampment to deliver a notice that it will be abated in 72 hours. Altogether, abatement takes 3 to 10 days, but Aurora takes extra steps to avoid just kicking people to a different curb. Our job with our outreach team is to encourage people to take services, come into shelter, Procer explains. About 130 to 150 shelter beds are available in Aurora on any given day, according to officials. However, the city doesn't operate its own shelter, instead partnering with the Aurora Day Resource Center and the Comitas Crisis Center, which is a long-term overnight shelter. Aurora has had a lot of success with our Pallet Shelters, which are small, shed-like homes in a village run by the Salvation Army Aurora, according to Pallet, the company that helps build the shelters. The village houses 101 people. It's very approachable for people that are living in an encampment as a first kind of transition center, Poser said. There's not been a resistance to coming into pallet shelters. Aurora's 2022 estimated homelessness population of 612 people is much smaller than the point in time estimate for Denver's estimated homeless population of 4,800 people. However, a greater portion of Denver's homeless is sheltered. About three-quarters find places to stay in shelters, according to Denver's most recent data. Still, more than 1,300 people were reported as sleeping on the streets of Denver during the 2022 point-in-time count. The Colorado Coalition for the Homeless estimates that as many as 3,300 people were unsheltered in Denver in 2022. During the past five years, Denver's homeless population has increased by about 44%, and its unsheltered population has doubled since 2016 to 27% of the city's total homeless population. Mercury Cafe Celebrates Jewish Klezmer, Balkan Music with Festo Festo by John Flathman Live music abounds in Denver, but there's nothing quite like Festo Festo. The monthly gathering of musicians, dancers, and artists showcases Jewish klezmer music and a wide range of Balkan music traditions. But that prosaic description hardly does justice to the joyfully raucous reality. Hosted by the Mercury Cafe on the last Thursday of every month, it's part dance party, part concert series, with violins singing, horns blasting, and dancers of all ages kicking up their heels arm in arm. When we visited last month, even the Wait staff were cutting a rug on their shifts. The celebration is conducted by two local band leaders, Eitan Cantor of Upshurin and Tung Pham of Gora Gora Orchestar, whose groups are at the center of the vibrant denver klezmer Balkan scene. Klezmer is a dance-heavy Jewish music tradition in which Upshurin specializes, Cantor explains. Much of it is functional music, so music designed for weddings and other celebrations and designed for dancing, says Cantor, who is also the music director for the Hebrew Educational Alliance Synagogue. Klezmer comes from the Hebrew words klezmer, which means a vessel of song. Traditionally, the word klezmer did not refer to a musical genre, but rather the person that is playing the music. The person becomes a vessel of song in klezmer. Klezmer includes instruments such as violin, clarinet, cymbal, a kind of hammer dulcimer, voice, and accordion. It also has a distinct geographic overlap with other non-Jewish Eastern European musical traditions. Cantor had long been a student of the traditional genre, but it wasn't until he moved to Colorado that he discovered how much he enjoyed playing it live. I was really into Jewish music in the context of the synagogue. I had not, however, really experienced it as a, as a thing that people would want to dance to in the bar or at a party, he explains. And once I came to Colorado and met other klezmer musicians, I was like, oh wow, this music is so fun. He met Fam, a trumpet player, Denver East music teacher and leader of the Balkan brass band Gor Gor Orchestra, while working a Jewish wedding in 2018. They soon bonded over a shared interest in Eastern European music. The klezmer music that we're talking about is from Eastern Europe, and the Balkan music that Goragora Gora Orchestra plays shares a regional space, explains Fam. The music Gora plays is from Bosnia, Herzegovina, Romania, everywhere up and down the Balkan Peninsula. It's just a really nice convergence of two different cultures that are somewhat disparate but kind of not disparate. We found a way to share musical space. Festo Festo 2.0 is approaching its one-year anniversary after a long pandemic-inspired hiatus. The first official show was in February of 2020 and was a hit, remembers Fam, It was really well attended, and I think we had a couple of them right before COVID hit, and then boom, we were in quarantine and we had to pause the whole thing for two years. If anything, the pause has intensified Fam and Cantor's desire to share the celebratory music showcase, which returned in July of 2022. That's when we first started being like, okay, let's get this thing back, says Fam. Let's start to actually feature bands and get guest artists to come in and work with us and start to build forward momentum. So we've been doing them almost every month since then and featuring different Colorado artists. In addition to their groups, which play every Festo Festo, each event showcases other area bands with related styles. It's actually been really lovely turning the attention toward our colleagues, says Fam. We've been lucky enough to be in a very vibrant music scene that features quite a few musicians who are interested in klezmer music and Balkan music as well as Balkan dance. It's such a rich scene in Colorado between bands like Hall Aqua and the Lost Tribe, and Barblefish and the Boulder Klesmer Consort in Planina, adds Cantor. The convergence of musicians turns into a big party, with circles of dancers crowding the floor, spectators clapping and cheering over their dinner plates, and musicians sucking down pints of beer between breaths. One of the best parts about Festo Festo is how much dancing happens, Cantor says. We've had a lot of attendance and support from the folk dance communities around town, so we really get to play this music in the context that it's originally intended, which is playing for dancers. Another highlight of the evening is the closing all-band jam, in which every musician comes back to pack the stage and play together. We also always conclude with a big community sort of jam session where we try to get everyone involved, says Fam. Not just the musicians who are featured in the event, but community members as well, to sing, to dance, to bring an instrument and play with us. It's a whole thing. In June, the guest artist is Corvin Orchestra, a Balkan brass band from Santa Fe. Cantor and Fam are also actively looking for other artists to schedule, as well as potential sponsors. Festo Festo is free to attend, with a suggested donation of 10 to $20, and the duo says it has a lot more music and fellowship to share. It's a great thing to be a part of, where you are experiencing something that you may not be able to see in other spaces in Denver, and that is so celebrated the way that it's celebrated at Festo, says Fahm. We come out with a real sense of joy and purpose, that is really translatable and is really relatable to people of all generations. Man, it's just such good vibes. Festo Festo, last Thursday of each month. Mercury Cafe, 2199 California Street. Admission is free with a suggested donation of 10 to $20. Vintage Theater Stages Lynn manuel Miranda's In the Heights by Tony Tresca. Before Lin-Manuel Miranda created the global phenomenon Hamilton, he wrote In the Heights. The musical, which he wrote in 1999 as a sophomore at Westland University, is set on the hottest day of summer and follows the locals of Washington Heights, a New York City neighborhood that predominantly comprises Dominican Americans. Following years of development, In the Heights opened on Broadway in March of 2008, and was nominated for 13 Tony Awards, winning four. It first premiered in Denver at Vintage Theater back in 2013, and ten years later, the theater is bringing back the upbeat, vibrant musical for a run from Friday, June 23rd to July 30th. I remember realizing the significance of In the Heights after it won Tonys, says George Zamaripa, who plays Kevin in the upcoming production. Their performance was fresh and unlike anything I'd ever seen before. The variety of song styles in In the Heights was fantastic, but what really struck me was its universality. It's about death, conflict, first loves, family, and the realization that everyone has a life to live. The musical is this great mosaic of what it's like to be a human and live life with a Latino flair. This production of In the Heights is as authentic as you can get, adds Brandon J. Lopez, who is rejoining the cast after appearing in the 2013 production. Not only will you see it in the culture, the lines, and music, but you will also see yourself in the show. Our actors are so diverse and talented that there is no way you won't connect to the story. In the Heights explores the intersecting issues of rising rents, identity, and racism, in Washington Heights through the eyes of first-generation Dominican-American bodega owner Yusnavi and his friends. Teach Morgan Arzola, who plays Yusnavi, says he was drawn to the musical because of how it embraces the togetherness of the BIPOC community through singing, dancing, and acting. In the Heights is a musical with dramatic and romantic overtones, that also acknowledges those relevant issues addressing the American BIPOC community, he continues. I'm excited about showcasing a captivating story about finding identity through ethnic culture, as well as the effects of American society's assimilation on BIPOC individuals, the negative impacts of gentrification, the relationship of all Latinx cultures, and simply what to do if your dreams come true. Most of the actors and creative teams say that In the Heights has been one of their dream musicals to partake in because of how it represents their culture. Karen Gonzalez, who plays Vanessa, says the production is being like being at a Latino party and you're just a fly on the wall watching all this drama and fun unfold with this big community. This is just such a community show and we've created our own family. Director Jonathan Anduhar, meanwhile, has wanted to be a part of the show ever since hearing the cast album in college in the early 2010s. The opportunity to direct In the Heights at Vintage was a dream come true, he says. It was one of those moments that didn't feel real until auditions, and then I was really in the thick of it, and I was just really excited to put together a group of people that could tell the story authentically. All the singing, acting, and dancing are rooted in Latin speech, dance, and spirit. I was really excited about the opportunity to tell a story about people like me, rather than facilitate another project that was either Eurocentric or white-centric. This gave me the opportunity to do something very Latin-centric. He adds that the musical is staged in a black box setting. I've seen it on prosceniums and sometimes feel like it can get very showy in the sense that the character's struggles are lost in the spectacle, he explains. I really wanted to showcase the intimacy of the story. These are real people going through these things, and there is this deep tenderness and connection with all the people living in a community. Although many of the cast members were familiar with the music, Miranda's score is notoriously challenging. The song includes Latin rhythms, hip-hop lyrics, and soul sounds. I've been singing my whole life, and I still think this music isn't easy, says Emily Diaz, who plays Daniela. It got to a point where music director Donna Debrasini had to highlight every single line in a different color because it's so hard to keep track of. The score is really complex, but really beautiful once it comes together. Even though it was difficult, the cast fought to keep every part intact. We didn't want to cut anything because we were excited to perform Lin-Manuel Miranda's score in its entirety. The fact that we are performing this speaks volumes to the dedication and commitment of the entire cast. And Duhar sought to have the choreography look like movements that you might see at a Latin house party or nightclub. I understand that we're doing musical theater, But I wanted all the movement to have a distinctly Latin aesthetic that felt realistic, and Duhar says. Our opening number is going to drop some jaws. It hits, and the show keeps on hitting. I've seen production where it trails off toward the end, where they don't go in as hard with the energy and rapping. However, our production really moves and is gorgeous from top to bottom. With its enigmatic tale of what it means to pursue your dreams while honoring your heritage... In the Heights is the ideal way to beat the heat this summer, or whatever wacky weather Colorado throws our way. By seeing this show, you are supporting local theater, equality and equity for BIPOC artists, Morgan Arsola says. Most of all, vintage theater doesn't disappoint. If you know this theater company, you know the standard. The matter of the fact is, I'm talking about something you have to see in person to experience. I believe my words have merit, but the only way to prove that is to sit down, relax, and enjoy In the Heights at Vintage Theater this summer. In the Heights, Friday, June 23rd through July 30th, Vintage Theater, 1468 Dayton Street, Aurora. Find tickets, times, and more information at vintagetheater.org. Crazy Mountain Brewery is making a comeback in a new location June 23rd. By Ryan Packmeyer. In order to have the chance for a future, Crazy Mountain Brewery had to tear everything up and start from scratch. From noon to 10 p.m. on Friday, June 23rd, the brewery will celebrate its grand opening at a new location, 1505 Ogden Street. The space is the former home of Alpine Dog Brewing Company, which reopened a half mile away earlier this year. At its peak, Crazy Mountain had over 35 employees on staff. Today, there are only four, as well as a silent investor. Its beer used to be distributed in over 30 states and five countries. It was insane, recalls head brewer and COO A.J. Chase, who joined the team seven and a half years ago. Before that, he worked at Omegang Brewery in Cooperstown, New York. Coming from a large and well-respected production brewery like Omegang helped Chase improve production and logistics at Crazy Mountain, which moved down from the Vale Valley in 2015 and opened at 471 Calamath Street, a building that had once been a Breckenridge Brewery location. Since then, Crazy Mountain has been on a wild ride, with many court actions related to rental and leasing disputes, as well as plenty of ventures that didn't pan out over the years. Now, Chase is excited to get back to the basics and focus on beer. We had to clean house, he says. The big shakeup needed to happen, and we're just so damn excited to have a nice clean spot and fresh beer. The CEO was replaced, and the head brewer, who is facing numerous allegations from former employees during the craft beer reckoning, is no longer with the company either. At the large space on Kalamath, which had fermenters with capacities that reached 200 barrels, Crazy Mountain was forced to contract brew for other breweries to cover costs. The new spot on Ogden is a much better fit. This is probably the move that should have been made when the company came down from Vale Valley, Chase admits. With such a small brewing system, a one-barrel pilot brewery from well-known company SS Brewtech, keeping beer fresh shouldn't be a problem. Chase plans to focus on a wide variety of beers that can be enjoyed in a taproom setting, such as a refreshing Mexican lager and a juniper pale ale, two beers that will be available on day one. He's also going to open up the recipe book, which he estimates is about 120 recipes deep, bringing back favorites like lawyers, guns, and money, as well as horseshoes and hand grenades. The June 23rd opening tap list will also include a shandy an extra special bitter, a porter, an amber, a wheat, and a pair of IPAs. Chase is also looking forward to collaborating with others again, starting with Black Sky Brewing. The two breweries built a friendship when Crazy Mountain was a neighbor on Kalamath, and Black Sky will have three guest beers on tap for the grand opening. While the small team is excited to open, the hard work isn't over. The brewery has had to pay rent on the space for the last two years, adding financial pressure. TAP manager Jason Wagner is set to handle the grand opening with his limited crew, but plans to fill more front-of-the-house positions next week. Chase also hopes to increase capacity from the current 91 to closer to 120, and there are plans to add a kitchen as well. Crazy Mountain will be open for pre-concert crowds that gather at the neighboring Ogden Theater and the nearby Fillmore, but it plans to close around 10 p.m., avoiding some of the rough and rowdy late-night crowds on Colfax. The team did a series of soft openings for the Nuggets championship run, and it was encouraging. Chase says that Crazy Mountain plans to have NFL games showing this season, as well as a Dart League on Mondays, trivia on Tuesdays, and a few other events that aren't yet scheduled. Seeing people happy all the time, that's really what we want, he concludes. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.